Three, two, two one. one. Let's go! I am the host of the PVE podcast, Troy Tittlemeyer, joined in studio with technical advisor, CEO, or uh, whatever you want to call him, Stan the Man Keith, Skippo, co-host of the PBE podcast, coming in live from the virtual Serpentosphere, and we have Mr. David Insminger uh, joining the show today, and uh, this gets weird, and it gets wild, and it gets very like pointed to me. For me, what dropped out was a, some a couple of very specific things which I want to bring up, but I first want to go around the horn with everybody and uh, and see what dropped out for you. So we'll start with Skips. What do you think, Skips? Uh, well, first, just kind of the your background, David, from going like where you started, getting through the '80s, and like Dude. getting through these highs and lows. That dream team at Tom Brown, and <laughs> and your experience at Whiting, and just drilling so many of these horizontal wells, and then you know now coming into more of the drill down segment more on the technical side really highlighting the importance of you know brine chemistry and its relation to not only you know your oil production but hey did you go across a lineament or you know like is how is this affecting your water cut and these are all things that you were able to quantify based on you know obviously you had to do a lot of like grunt work you know QCing the data but the correlations you've made were phenomenal so that that's what dropped out for me today. What about you, T. Roy? Now, so the couple of things, or Stan, you want to jump in? What what dropped out? Well, yeah, um, for me, the overall relationship to uh, of these brines uh, and some kind of a fractionation effect to a, what appears to be a deep seated structure uh, implies that these things may have a deep source at some point. Uh, and also the possibility that they relate to the oil gravities, the oil chemistries, uh, suggests to me there may be a genetic connection between these brines. I, I don't think these things just fell off the central high or they came from the northwest shelf. I, I think they came <laughs> with the oil themselves, right. and the oil fractionation is tied into the brine and scenario. That's and that's where I wanted to kind of go with it. You, you're thinking obviously in the in the technical side and the specifics, but there's like a there's a broad relationship with structure and and fluid chemistry that we talk about in this show, and it's 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 there. It's in the data. You see it in the seismic. You see it in the wells. You see it in the data. There's this broad relationship, and then there's this very specific relationship of horizons and what's changing across liniments, which is structurally related to this deep-seated feature that we're talking about but then the idea that all right if if you have an exploration or an exploitation budget and you are ready to drill horizontal wells in the delaware basin when the time is right for economics i saw a lot of white space on the east side of that fault which for me or the west side depending on what happens with gas and condensation and how expensive or how lucrative that could be you, you kind of have like this heat map that you're building. At least that's what I got from listening to you talk and, and thinking about it economically and, and for exploration purposes. The data is suggesting that there are higher probabilities of success or lower probabilities of getting into some complexity that might not help with the bottom line. So if we do have an opportunity with the right prices coming up and you have the budget to do it, 
I think this has uh, an obvious place in the discussion at the technical tables of these companies. Well, brines are not accidental. There's something that needs to be taken seriously in any, any exploration. Well, Troy, you hit on something. For our company, since gas has been real low, I kept us drilling most of our wells to the east of that fault because I knew that, you know, hide you our wells weren't going to be economic. So, yeah. you know, up to this point in time, that's why you find most of the wells over there. We had acreage on the other side, but we drilled very few wells over there only to save a lease or so. Sure. However, with this $5 gas, you know, I think that if you have money, there's some opportunities now that were different than, you know, several years ago. Right. Right. And so, you're, you've picked up on that. So there was a lot in that talk. There was definitely a lot to dive into, but I think it had economic implications for where we're at and maybe where the industry is trying to twist and turn into. As as you mentioned, gas prices are changing. Oil and gas prices are are, are always dynamic, and so are these systems. And maybe even though that the, the money guys, in my opinion, have obviously realized that there is a lot of complexity in the horizontal drilling game. Yes, we make a lot of oil and gas, but there's a lot of money that goes into doing that. And so when you, they now have some risk aversion going into this industry and specifically the Permian, but this is it. This is the stuff we learn and the, uh, the observations we're making and the discussions we're happening where the money that's still going there and they still believe in it and we need to move oil and gas from the subsurface to the refineries to sustain the energy of Texas and in our country, certainly. Uh, this is a way to dive back into that and save some money. We understand its complexity. It's not as simple, but there is data there and there is definitely a suggestion here in this, in this talk, in this podcast that I think everyone can use. This episode is brought to you by Bell Geospace. Bell Geospace has the gravity data that you need in the Permian Basin to see the structures below your reservoir, to see the structures in the reservoir and above. It's all connected. It all has a lot to say and a lot to do with how much oil, brine, or gas you're getting. You need the data to make better wells. You got to contact Julianne Sharples, jsharples at bellgeo.com or go to bellgeo.com. Check out their data. Check out what they're providing in their FTG, full tensor gravity gradiometry. The data is very high resolution. We did an exciting show, episode 91 with Bell Geospace, interpreting some of that data. Contact them today. Drill better wells. Let's go. All right, we are officially starting the conception part of the PB podcast with Mr. David Insminger. And uh, it's cool for me to sit down and, and get to talk to you after all these years. You know, we met in 2014, uh, and I don't know if you remember, but I certainly do, uh, because you were, you were an obvious mentor to everybody that was involved in the AAPG. You were, you were, you were just that intimately related loose electron going around the event and you know getting people together and talking about this stuff and and uh and you know i was i was always very curious and always into that and uh with that you mixed with dave thomas the third was a huge you know growth for utpb i feel like 
And uh, certainly for me personally, uh, on my journey through the oil patch in Midland and, and our time spent there. So, you know, that's that's my conception introduction to you, Mr. David Insminger. But let's start with where it all began. The rocks, school, you know, let's go through some young professional stuff. Like, how did this all go? What, how's your story go? I'm one of those strange ones. I knew I was going to be a geologist from a very young age. Uh, both my parents were in the Air Force. And we traveled around and every summer we would go out to one of my grandparents' house, either in North Dakota or New York. And on those travels, I used to pick up rocks. No so I had this interest for rocks from a very young age and then went on in college. I went to the University of Idaho where I got my Whoa. degree in geolog geological engineering. Is that Twin Falls? What is that? No, that's up in uh, Moscow. Up in northern Idaho. Northern. Yeah, like, just uh, across the river from Pullman, Washington. Yeah, yeah. There are sister university there. Whoa. Okay, geology but, degree. No, 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 engineering degree. Sorry. It was a geological engineering, you know, for mining. And that's what I planned on going into. And then in the mid-70s, uh, of course, mining took a downturn, much like our oil business sometimes does. And uh, uh, the jobs I thought I was going to have didn't didn't pan out, and I ended up uh, with an internship in Boise, Idaho, with a, their utility called Intermountain Gas or well, IGC Production, uh, with a, a, a what turned out to be a, a great friend and mentor all my life, David Hawk, and I worked the summer of with him in, in uh, 77, and he, he said, if I wanted to go into oil business, I'm going to have to get a master's degree, and that wasn't on my agenda, but uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I was enjoying what I was doing, so, you know, the first thing I did is, is uh, I started looking at the Colorado uh, School of Mines, and then he he said, well, you know, if you stay in state, we'll go ahead and help pay for your, your education and you can continue working with us. Well, I couldn't quite turn that down. And I ended up going to school at Idaho State University over in Pocatello, which is over in eastern Idaho. And at the time, the Thrust Belt, Idaho, Wyoming Thrust Belt was booming. Um, it was a major, major play from Utah, Wyoming, Idaho. And the summer of 1978, I sat my first well in the Big Hole Range of Idaho, which is there in the Teton Valley across from Driggs, looking right onto the Tetons. Wow. And, and I go, I man. like this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if I'm well, you got into rocks. geology and being a geologist, sitting wells and sitting out here by uh, the Tetons, I think I could enjoy this. And, and I was hooked. And I, the rest of the summer, I did my uh, thesis work, uh, which was right out in that area, and then finished my degree in 79 and went to work for ARCO. And I thought I was going down to Denver with them but ended up in the Gulf Coast in Houston. Wow. Which actually turned out to be an incredible 
opportunity because I I uh, worked offshore New Mexico. They're both in, or they the the coast in Texas and and Louisiana. And at that time, you know, that was all very high tech type uh, geology. They were actually doing S-shaped holes, semi-slant holes, all types of things with uh, some of the best equipment. And, you know, we were off on, on drill ships, on tenders, on, on semi-submersibles, jack-ups. So I, I uh, really had a great start to my career. But things God. happened, and I, end, I ended up uh, back up in, Den in Denver after two years with uh, – Dave Hawk, my friend. How long? How long were you on those platforms out there? You know, airlifting oh, out or whatever up that. To a, up to a week to ten days. Most of the time, only a couple days. You know, as as the professionals, we got to fly helicopters out where all the uh, other people would end up taking boats. So we uh, really had it pretty pretty nice. Wow! Come out the helicopter with your company hat on, yeah. <laughs> ready to make a decision. You know, we, our job, well, that was before cell phones and everything. So we would fax in a little piece. We'd go out for logging and coring and any decisions. So a lot of times we would, uh, you know, we'd get our, our log and cut it up and put it through a fax and send it back to the office and make our recommendations. And that's kind of how you made decisions at that time. Wow. Much different yeah. than today when you just transmit it on an email or a text message. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's interesting to think about that from my perspective. I'm always working on projects and things, and, and sometimes it seems like you, you get held back, but you get to think about it more before you deliver or whatever, right? And so there's, some, yeah. there's something being gained or lost in this technology development of, of communication and how fast something is communicated, which means how fast it's being interpreted and, and a decision is being made. Yeah. Um, anyway, I just, uh, I was interested to hear that point or that perspective that you had, and you've seen that you've actually, your career, you're seeing that in both sides. The beginning was just faxes. You would fax the information, we would get fax. out there. And that wow. was the time when, you know, logs were made uh, in those uh, ammonia tubes. <laughs> you know, we didn't have digital uh, paper. It it uh, they had to print it off on a film, and then uh, print it off on on paper through those ammonia tubes. Uh, crazy. And so you were going back on the helicopter like this, this log, new log that you just got printed out, or is that yeah. actually printing out back at the office? Is that no? On? They didn't have that type of a uh, uh, technology at the time. You'd have to take a a uh, vellum film back, and then they would print it off. So wow. hold it, it on to that was, paper, hold on to that log for dear life as you're going back in the yeah. helicopter. I'm sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have wow. a whole bunch of stories on that, but we'll go with that for another day. <laughs> then I, I, uh, I, I went to Denver to work for uh, a startup, um, and we were working Ohio at the time. Mm. And going from high tech to Ohio at the time, we were cable tool drilling. So, um, and then when we got a logging truck, 
which they rarely logged wells. Uh, it was all analog at that time, no digital analog systems. So it, it took me back uh, many, many years. And we would, we would actually, uh, when we frack a well, or, or actually when we perforated a well, they would take the line and set it out on the, um, on the platform or, or right out on the dirt and say, you know, where do you want your shots put in? And, and they would actually make it up right on the surface. Wow. Something you'd never do today. <laughs> and, and then, then like our little Berea wells, were, which were at 600 feet. What? Uh, yeah, 600 feet. I was going to uh, say, but drilling with the, like the methods you tool. had, how long? Yeah, I was going to say with the cable tool, how long would it take from spud to TD? Uh, cable tool for that 600 feet was probably about five days for <laughs> our Clinton wells. Clinton wells was about a month or two weeks uh, to a month to do 3000 feet. Whoa. But, but, you know, we would nitro the Berea wells. They'd take these tubes of nitro and we put a, two barrels of water in the, in the well, and then, uh, send that that nitro down and run and you see everything come out. <laughs> Good old OSHA standards. Uh, that was back in the, in yeah. the early eighties. Yeah. That's and, right. And that we were... the time all our, our, all our salt water was sold to the County so they could mm -hmm. use in the winter time to put on the roads. Whoa. They were, they were using it, it for the roads. They used it That's for smart. the roads to keep the Super snow smart. off. Different different times. Yeah. Now they must still do that. They must still do that, right? Do you use the brine no, up in cold countries? No, for... that's that's all environmentally not used anymore. Hadn't it came from six hundred feet. <laughs> it came from six hundred feet. That's that's the environment giving us a tool to de-ice our roads. <laughs> it sounds like a good idea, but environmentally, that's a no-no. Yeah, I get it. I uh, guess somebody probably pissed. I, what happened to all my grass? <laughs> we had a freeze, man. <laughs> uh, after that, I went to work for, uh, we were two years, and that little company uh, went away and then went to work for Cabot. Uh, wow. All We worked all over the Rockies and the Mid-Continent and a little bit even in the Permian. This is Cabot Oil uh, that just merged with Cimerex, right? That's correct. Long time wow. company. Great company. Uh, wonderful group of people we work with. Uh, unfortunately, the mid-80s, big crash. And uh, I got caught up in it finally. I made it through a couple layoffs, but finally uh, there was two of us. And, and I drew the short straw the last part and went out on my own with uh, a little... We set up a company called uh, Bearcat Petroleum. Never made a cent, but it got me through the tough times. <laughs> what was it? Uh, what was the purpose? Was it consulting and making decisions for people, or you were actually trying? No, to spend... we were actually trying to sell deals. Wow. Uh, I had a couple prospects, but you know, no one was taking anything in the uh, in eighty six, eighty seven, yeah. eighty eight. Everything just crashed. Sounds like the last couple of years. Uh, it was. It was every bit as bad as, as the last couple of years. You know, wow. I think we lost uh, a third or half of the industry at that time. Wow. And did they, how much, all right, out of the half that left, because there was literally no way to feed your families anymore, 
Uh, how many came back? Not, not as many as you think. A lot of them, just like now, um, there, was, there was this big bubble of older people. They retired. And uh, many of the people just got out of the industry. They were tired of the ups and downs. Yeah. So very similar to now, it, it was that bad. And then, you know, as you went through the 90s and the early 2000s, companies didn't really um, get going very much. Wow. It long, was just long hiatus there in the industry. Everybody, you know, us older folks really remember that. But it happens it was, about every 20, 30 years. So, 20, so that means it's, it's, it's potentially what's happening now. There's going to be a downtime on new drilling, you think, maybe? You know, it's going to be different. I don't know how to predict yeah. it. We'll save uh, that for the completion part. I'm fascinated yeah. with the 600-foot reservoir. What were the IPs on these things? Like, what was oh, a cool... Oh, we got two barrels a day. We were doing, you know, oh, it was economic. Nice. Heck yeah, that's, that's economic that, at 600 that's feet. That's fantastic. <laughs> you know, for $15,000, we drilled and complete them. We had a little pump jack that looks, uh, you know, had a... Uh, lawnmower engine on it <laughs> you know if you got two barrels a day you made money at 30 dollar right. oil that's and right that's what it was at the time i mean your so, loe yeah. like you said you just gotta make sure that lawnmower engine is running like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> how much brine how much brine since this podcast is going to be focused on the brine the produced water from formation how much were you, you know, getting a day uh, not I don't remember. It wasn't too much. It was maybe uh, 50% water, you know, so maybe a, a barrel or two a day. Wow. As best I can remember. One, almost one to I, one out of this thing. Yeah, I didn't spend much time with water at that time. You know, it was all about oil. And right. It wasn't until later I wised up. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is cool. What an experience. And then you start but going then, into. Uh, yeah, you know, habit. Uh, then after Cabot went to back to work for Arco and that's when I started in the Permian in Midland. Um, it's funny that my wife and I had one time said early in our career, we, we'd never, uh, never live in Midland. And then we, uh, didn't know if we ever get out of Midland. So we spent the next 30 years from 88 until, uh, 2019 in Midland. Uh, we had a couple year hiatus. I'll go into that here in a minute. But yeah, I worked for Arco. Um, I progressed up from area geologist to regional geologist. And then I was the director of uh, reservoir geology for all the western part of uh, the U.S., which was a, a wonderful experience because I I learned that was uh, in the early 90s. We were just doing large reservoir models mm -hmm. for our CO2 floods and our water floods. In fact, we had uh, just put together a big model for Long Beach, uh, the Wilmington field. And, uh, you know, that that's a, a field that has some three different uh, islands off the mm -hmm the uh, beach of, of Long Beach. There's some and monster your, wells out there. Monster wells, long, long horizontals. Um, wow. You know, it's all a facade on the island, so you don't notice that it's, you know, hundreds of wells on those. Oh, yeah. Very interesting. 
And wow. then we were in Bakersfield with uh, with that heavy oil and steam flooding out there. Yep. I, that's where I kind of got started with my curiosity in the geology world was Bakersfield. I got to go out and, and job shadow someone from ERA who was working Bell Ridge. Right. What an interesting... Yeah, that, yeah, that Midway Sunset, uh, Ventura, all that. A, a really fascinating area. Right. Oh, yeah. So that was a, a great exposure to building models and getting them ready for engineering. What was the difference in the API between, obviously, California's you got your shoe polish almost to... Yeah, it was like 20, 20 uh, uh, degree oil. And then the That's ones the, on the island? Um, you know, I don't remember that, but I think that was more in the 35 or so. Yeah, it's, I, I a, it's lighter. Wrong. It's No, it's yeah, definitely it lighter. lighter. Yeah. Wow. It's not, it's not that Bakersfield, you know, waterproof <laughs> <Or>. a canoe. <laughs> but not quite like the champagne of like the Middle East or something. No, no. Right. Wow. Cool. So, you know, after that experience, uh, uh, Arco split up in, two, uh, in 93 and formed Arco Permian and Vastar. And they were kind of separate entities and, and uh, led us kind of run our own business and, and it was probably really? quite quite phenomenal at the time something that a lot of people don't know is Arco had a, a large swath of the Midland Basin and for a couple of years they uh, they drilled you know two million feet of, of uh, wells we got this little plaque out of it that's why I remember but they started fracking both the wolf camp and the spray beer uh, and making some phenomenal wells. And then, you know, it just never was enough for Arco. And that's when Henry Petroleum uh, started doing things. And th but they were the smart ones. They kind of took it and really ran with it and picked up all the acreage. And that's when, <laughs> you know, the, the wolf berry really got going. And you have Whoa. to give credit for to Henry for doing that. Wow, Henry! Wow. Uh, I met him in person one time. He uh, he's an engineer by trade, or was he a geologist? He's an engineer. Okay, and he just so simply Fievel, saw. Dave Fievel was the geologist, and okay. he was he's the one that kind of ran with it and and really got you know deserved the credit for running with it uh, at Henry. But there was actually an engineer from. Wow from Arco that went over there to help them because Arco wasn't going to do it. And, uh, you know, Henry kind of spurred everything that went on. Now they didn't do horizontals, but they did all the wolf berries, uh, all the wolf berry, which then led to horizontals. Right. Uh, you know, right. later. Yeah. If it's all stacked up and you're perfect nine zones over a certain yeah. amount of vertical feet, let's go horizontal and, and try to connect that. That, that Which is, I'll come back to all that here in just a minute because it leads into uh, more of my history. Um, in 2000, Arco sold to BP. And I chose to stay with them. Uh, my wife and I, we went down to Houston for three years. I had a, a my plan was to go overseas with BP. Wow. Well, uh, Unfortunately, 9-11 happened. Wow. And, and BP 
brought in all their expats. And so going overseas didn't look like it was a possibility. And my good friend, Dave Thomas, who I met doing reservoir work at North Cowden when he was at Conico, uh, he had started working for Tom Brown and he asked me if I'd like to come back to Midland and work for Tom Brown. And uh, I said, sure. So in 2003, I came back to Midland and we were doing deep gas Devonian horizontal wells. Um, in fact, we, uh, Tom Brown purchased one of the largest rigs, uh, deep rigs in the Permian Basin. It was a timber, timber sharp rig, I think. Uh, uh, you know, it stood up about 2,000 feet. It could drill down to 30,000 feet. Jeez. And um, working with Tom Brown and Dave's group was one of the greatest geological experiences I ever had because I mean, every geologist the, the, had their the own giants tech. there. I mean, oh my well, goodness, we had, that, we that had team our own was just techs. unreal. Yeah, uh, we had uh, uh, Calvin Serpas as our, our petrophysicist, uh, Jay May, our, our oh, geophysicist. And, ah. and all we, as a geologist, all we had to do is interpret. And yeah. we got to drill these incredible wells. In fact, um, I remember drilling uh, what are the Hoary Pits, <laughs> which, which uh, quite a name. We were drilling it at uh, during... December of uh, 2003, we, we were doing a dual well. It was a vertical in the Ellenberger at 17,000 feet and a 5,000 foot horizontal at 14,000 feet. Uh, we were partnered with Pure. We, uh, at, at that particular time, uh, we had gone through a number of wells that hadn't worked real well for, for Tom Brown and spent a lot of money on these horizontal Devonian wells. But, but what happened is, is uh, um, we finally got a good DST in the Ellenberger at 5 million a day. Wow. We, we uh, set a temporary plug and then went horizontal in the Devonian. And uh, at That's the up time, on the up on the platform, or is this out no, in the basin? No, it's a Warsham, Warsham in the Delaware Basin, Warsham Bear Field. Okay. So it's just right off the platform. Um, as it turned out, that well came in for ten million a day at ten dollar gas right at Christmas time. So it was oh quite my a present. God. Uh, Merry Christmas. Yeah, it was a Merry Christmas. <laughs> uh, then you know, Dave in us had this idea that the Barnett was working real well over in the Fort Worth Basin. So uh, we started um, working the Delaware Basin and put together, I, I, don't, I, I was thinking it was like about 200,000 acres. But anyway, in Canabars. Wow. Okay. Brought Tom Brown at the time. And part yeah. of that was because of the big acreage position we had for Burnett, Burnett and um, Woodford. Wow. Fascinating. Uh, this is early I, 2000s? This was in 2004. 
Wow. So are you looking at fractured Woodford or is this more 31 or is this? Uh, this was Barnett. I, I actually, well, when we were doing the, De, the Devonian yeah. at Tom Brown, this was in the, uh, this is 31. Okay. It was a dolomitic zone that we were trying to get into. Wow. That had really good porosity when you found it, but it was really hard to find. Yeah. And yes, you were looking for fractures. So it was all along that Kyanosa, uh, Waha, um, Block um, 16, Forsham area. And so, then we also did a lot down um, in Packingham Field. So John this is, uh, Southwell did that. This reminds me of the the stories that you hear from uh, from people that go, yeah, we, we used to drill through the Wolf Camp Bone Spring all the time. Like you remember wow. drilling through the Wolf Camp and Bone Spring. You uh, up, get through it. Absolutely, absolutely. The the Wolf Camp and the Atoka and the Strawn were all pain in the butt for us drilling down to that Devonian. We would get, uh, you know, we'd get these good shows, but they wouldn't last. Yeah. You know, the, you know, you get maybe a day of production at, uh, um, you know, several million a day, but it just never lasted. So yeah, it was nuisance. Wow. We weren't, uh, we didn't, uh, we weren't wise enough that it was going to be that good at, at that time. Yeah. I don't think yes. anyone was though at that time. No, it, it, it was, in fact, if you go most company managers, if you mentioned Wolf Camp, it was a bad name back in the 90s and all that. No one wanted to do Wolf Camp stuff. Wow. What an interesting, interesting. So, But, uh, but the Barnett and, and Woodford was really interesting. Yeah, right. Okay. And economic. I mean, uh, you guys were proving it. Well, the Devonian was, but, but even in the early 2000s, the Barnett and the Woodford really didn't do very well in the in, anywhere in the permit. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, you know, after after in Canna bought Tom Brown, they and Concho and uh, several companies tried to make it work in the Delaware Basin and really had a lot of problems. And it never was successful in the Delaware Basin. Mm -hmm. except for uh, a short stint when Chesapeake drilled uh, a bunch of wells there um, in the southern part of the Delaware Basin and Reeves and that. And they actually were making it pretty good. It was gassy, but there wasn't much infrastructure at the time. <clears throat> and so uh, I give credit to Chesapeake. They kind of opened up that play but then gas prices fell apart wow. in the mid 2000s. And, right. and so that kind of went away. Well, after my work with uh, Tom Brown, I went to work for Whiting Petroleum and I opened the office for them in Midland with my laptop and a card table and a <laughs> cell phone. <laughs> um, it was the first time they had a satellite office. I remember talking with the, uh, the CEO Whiting. He said, well, uh, we'll give you a year 
And if it works out, you know, you can stay in Midland. Otherwise, you got to come to Denver. Wow. So as it turned out, about uh, three months after I started up the, the office there, they had bought a whole bunch of, of um, fields from Conquest. Hmm. And that actually, uh, the Midland, uh, the Permian was their, uh, the great majority of their production at the time. So we got all the money to, to do things. Wow. And, uh, but then they, they bought two very, very large CO2 flows from Solero. One was Possil Field up in the uh, panhandle of Oklahoma, large, large moral field. And they bought uh, Estes, Northwest Estes. Wow. Which is a large... Yates Queen Field and put the CO2 in the ground. They took it from, I don't know, uh, that that field I think had like 5,000 wells in it. Maybe, uh, if I remember right, less than 1,000 were producing at the time. Wow. And uh, Chevron had started a, a flood but abandoned it. That was a 75-year, there's a whole story, and I won't go into it, but but essentially, Chevron had a 75-year lease. They had forgot that they, it had a time on it, you know, <laughs> even though they were producing. They lost the leases. Others picked it up and flipped it several times, and then we ended up having it. And then wow. because of the expertise of uh, some of the people um, that came along uh, with Solero to to Whiting. They put in, you know, a huge, huge CO2 flood at Northwest Estes for Whiting. And how many producers uh, went? You went from a thousand producers to turn them all back on, or you just turned a lot I into think, an engine? I think when we left, it was about three thousand. You see, with CO2, um, you have to bring on groups of wells at a time because you know co2 is real costly mm-hmm. and so they would bring on these groups of patterns at a time and use up the co2 until they came to you know a certain amount of, of co2 in the ground then they go to the next one and next one next one wow would they recycle it, gas production yeah, they would recycle i think we were buying something like uh i may have the numbers uh wrong but something like 150 to 200 million a day of co2 and we were recycling somewhere around 350 wow that's insane it's huge you know it's a huge huge project so not to cut you off dave but i have a question so i remember when we were uh kind of just like when we're back in midland and i was working on my thesis uh I had a conversation with you about the Woodford wells that you guys were drilling at Whiting at Keystone South. So I I caught, yeah, I wanted to ask you about your experience there because I think, you know, it's fascinating what you guys discovered there. Well, that was, that was a new thing. Um, You know, I'd always had an interest in, in the Woodford and uh, we had the acreage at Keystone. That was a crown quest field that we ended up buying and, and um, there was some there was some activity going on by EOG 
and oxygen COG drilling a few Woodford wells up there on the platform. And because we had this field, we said, well, let's, let's take a look at it. So we actually cored that well and uh, a large core. In fact, one of the largest cores in the Woodford. And it looked very, very interesting. And of course, at the time, Whiting had uh, been successful in the Bakken. Mm. And, and we had a lab set up and we, we actually looked at the Woodford. It, it had all the characteristics we were looking for. Uh, good TLC, you know, incredible TLC, which I was going to say you're upward, you're upwards of like 12%, right? Yeah. In some cases, you know, an average, probably five or so. Yeah. And our, um, uh, vitronite refractance was right around, uh, I guess seven, seven, eight in that name neighborhood. So we thought, you know, based on the Bakken, that would be a sweet spot. Interesting. Well, as it turned out, it, it didn't work out. And, uh, uh, later we found out you got to understand not only the TOC, but you also have to understand the kinetics of rocks. And that's a whole nother subject, but you know, how, how the oil is actually transforming. And that was what happened is we, even though we had great oil, not much had transformed up on the platform. And that's why no one's been successful to date up on the platform. Interesting. Anyway, so yeah. The, yeah. Go ahead. So that you know, that's another whole story we can get into. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. I you know, I, I drilled a whole bunch of horizontals. We drilled a number of Woodford wells up there. I'd actually drilled a whole bunch of horizontals back at my Arco days. So, you know, horizontal drilling I've been doing since the mid-90s. Wow. But um getting back to Henry, some of the old Henry guys had left them and they started doing or, or picking up acreage in the Delaware Basin, which is what we picked up from them to do uh, kind of wolf bone wells back in oh, 2007-8 with Whiting. And uh, then did some early horizontal wells out there in the Delaware Basin, but we were just a little bit ahead of our time. Wow. And the Delaware Basin uh, just wasn't performing like the Bakken was, and also the Niagara. That, uh, so Whiting sold all their Permian acreage. We had 150,000 acres, Wow. Which, which give you a perspective how good it was. That's the acreage that Parsley picked up, um, Jetta had, and Brigham, who turned it to Diamondback. And if you followed all their stories, you know how good the uh, acreage that ended up turning out to be. We we always thought it was good. We were just ahead of our time. But anyway, pioneers. But but all that led to uh, you know I had eleven great years with Whiting, and uh, in in sixteen. Uh, you know, they kind of closed their office and, and uh, I had a chance to go out on my own for a while. And in the process of that, I consulted with a whole bunch of different companies and, and one of them happened to be MDC Texas Energy. And they, they had a little acreage spread there just west of 
Pecos, which at the time was peripheral to the main uh, Wolf Camp horizontal play. Hmm. And, um, but after looking at it and working with them for a little bit, I thought it had a lot of potential. Uh, they were trying to get uh, money and finally uh, we got some money for them in, uh, from Apollo to drill 17 horizontal wells wow. in 2017. And that's when things took off. And uh, there at uh, MDC, we ended up drilling almost uh, 100 wells. Wow, 100 horizontal and, wells? And, and yeah, we were, we were uh, pioneering a lot of different things. We drilled faster than we should have, which is another whole story. But the interesting thing about uh, MDC was that that uh, we we ended up proving up seven different horizons from the third bone spring all the way down to the Wolf Camp C. All individually were economic. Just when you put it all in a big package, uh, you know, you just can't drill it all up too quickly. Wow. And we learned that we were drilling them up, you know, for, for the economics of, of today. Right. This so is a, it was a lot of fun. We, we had eight rigs going at one time uh, for, for, you know, at the most, I think we ever had was 20 employees. So wow. we were busy. 20 employees running eight rigs, horizontal, oh, permian base. Yeah, we had five horizontal rigs and, and, and uh, two sputters and one intermediate uh, just to speed up, you know, getting everything going. Wow. So by, by, and, and that was between 2017 and 2019. So essentially in a two year period. Wow. That's incredible. That is incredible. Uh, and a great transition to the drill down segment of the show, because you, this is what you're right. talking about. And this is where we started learning early on was, uh, you know, some issues with high water cuts and uh, H2S. And at that time, there was a couple of companies that, uh, publish some information. We all kind of thought that lineaments were an issue out here. Uh, and I had been forewarned by a good friend with Slumberjay that in some of the 3Ds, they saw these, these shallow lineaments. Uh-huh. But we couldn't prove that any of those lineaments went down to the wood for, or wolf camp. Wow. Uh, but it became real obvious if you had a 3D any place that you crossed the lineament in these areas, you ended up having issues, either high H2S in your wells or high water cuts. So it was that they're definitely connected to the shallower obvious lineaments in the data, but it was within the vertical resolution or horizontal resolution of the seismic that you couldn't actually map them in the horizon. No, no. Wow. Um, uh, there, there was a really good Urtec paper that uh, they had done some high or, or some reprocessing that gave them hints of it. And um, that's when people started, or different operators had different solutions to what they were doing. You know, some wouldn't even drill across a, whore, uh, a lineament. If they knew it was there, they, they wouldn't drill their wells there. Some would drill across and not perforate. Ah. 
So you have these different processes and then some people had tried to plug them off. No one was really, really successful in yeah. plugging off these zones, but uh, short-term maybe, but not long-term. Right. So that's when it yeah. came to, when we got done kind of with our drilling, uh, I started looking at it and going, you know, could we do something with the waters? Well, you know, like, like many companies, water is not a, high priority so you don't take many samples normally mm-hmm. um, you know some companies will take samples right when they complete a well they'll get their oil gas and water samples well with water you know you might um, if you're taking it right after you complete it you have a lot of completion fluid yeah and you're i mean primarily right you're just looking for that tracer data right like what's coming back yeah, I mean, well, tracer data or whatever. So, yeah. so that is not really what's in the formation. So early time waters don't help you much understanding the real reservoir. Hmm. And then there's other people, the only time they take operators, take a, a water sample is when they have problems. Mm-hmm. Well, again, that doesn't help you with really understanding what the water is because you have a problem already. <laughs> so getting water samples that are representing of the actual reservoir takes taken water samples over time. And there's not many companies that do that. Wow. Including our company. You, we had 75 completed wells and I actually only had 15 of those wells sampled when I started this project. Wow. Um, and I had used, um, water analysis from DSTs many years ago and took a great course from Hugh Reed out of Canada Hmm. back in the early 90s. And I used that in water floods and everything, understanding water chemistries, uh, what had gone wrong, trying to compartmentalize water. Uh, You know, if if you understand water chemistries, you can sometimes compartmentalize each formation or understand where those waters are interconnected, even water flood or whatever. Sure. But you do have to get back to just like tracer analysis or anything, you have to get back to getting samples from an uncontaminated reservoir. And that that was a struggle early on because I had a very small data set. Um, I finally started convincing our engineers to collect more data. So we started collecting a little bit more data, but then I was really fortunate to uh, get samples from a number of operators in the area. And that's where I ended up, you know, getting, um, I don't know, close to 500 samples from, I think about 170 some wells that I used to create that baseline. Yeah, I I was able, and it it, it came down to in the data, you could tell very distinctive water chemistries from the Wolf Camp A upper and the C wells. And uh, which, and then you could also understand the chemistries from those wells that were connected to uh, the lineaments. Wow. And, uh, you know, and because I had a very, we only had a very small data, uh, 3D data set. 
I knew where these were in our data and then I could connect the dots. Sure. As it turns out, I can also now knowing the water chemistries, I can say, yeah, if you have one of these chemistry wells, you probably have a linear. Wow. Because you almost always have H2S in it, high uh, sulfate Very and everything else. Interesting. Yeah, this, so, is no, this is no longer an anomaly, right? That's the if, important yeah. thing, right? There, there is some factor geologically that's contributing to the change yeah. in water chemistry. Absolutely. You, you know, yeah. so we, you know, and it, um, but one of the things that I think was really critical for all this in, in what we were doing is that our company and other companies were missing out on opportunities because they treated all these issues the same by all the different formations. And as it turned out, there was a deep fault in the area that on the west side of that fault, you were gonna have problems in all the zones. But on the east side of that fault, the horizontal wells in the B and the C almost never had an issue if they crossed a, a linear where the A wells did. And what makes that significant is for those operators that weren't drilling intervals or they weren't completing intervals because they were afraid they were going to have problems, they were losing out on, you know, both production and reserves. Big and deal. so I think that was probably the biggest key understanding is that the risk of having these problems in the B and C in certain areas was minimal. So therefore you, you treated them different. Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's dive into the drill down segment of the show. You have a presentation. We're going to go through some slides. You're going to point uh, the obvious out to us. And then obviously okay. everybody has their own time and attention to grab your paper. Uh, I believe from the APG is the easiest way to get it. Uh, or they can call me or contact, give it to contact Mr. Ensminger. And what is the deepest well that was drilled in the Permian that you're aware of to date? Um, it's over 30,000 feet. It's down in, um, down around Gomez field to my knowledge. Oh, yeah. I know it's over 30,000 feet. I don't remember. Exactly. And where, where is the Gomez field? I'm a neophyte. Here. It's by like Fort Stockton. Uh, it's down in Pecos County. Oh, near, yeah. near Fort Stockton. Okay. Yeah. yeah like down I mean, that way. Yeah. Down that way. Like that'll give you a general yeah. sense of the area. Okay. I, I think all those were drilled in the sixties. Those real deep ones. I don't think anybody's drilled um, that deep since then. And partly is because it's all gas. Yeah, I was going to say the and, gas prices, right? Yeah, the gas prices just haven't been good. Mm -hmm. Except for a short window there in 2000 mm -hmm. that uh, we lucked out on at uh, Tom <laughs> Brown for a very short amount of time. Hey, that, that hey, right over Christmas, the timing couldn't have been better. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I wish I would have had the override on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you had asked about... Um, oil brine's fingerprinting you know in in um our field and and also many uh they use this up in the alaskan oil fields where there are multiple intervals and they produce all into one 
let's say one tank, they're if they finger they can fingerprint the, the the different oils because they have different overrides or different working interests, and by fingerprinting them, then uh, the original oils then they can they can save operational costs by putting it in one tank, and and then just you know use mathematics to to what uh, how much is coming out to do the overrides and working interest. But you can so do the same you, thing with the brines slash water, as you're calling it. Um, I, I would assume you can. I haven't seen it used that way. I've only seen it used in oils. Because, you know, brines don't make you money <laughs> yet. yet. You know, they right. may yeah, because yet. of minerals. But, you know, at this point, it's a cost. And, and in fact, in Texas, um, you know, many times people don't even uh, give the Railroad Commission how much, you know, brine they're making. So there's no, you know, you don't have to report amounts. Right. No, that's, and it's probably going to change, I would think, you know, in the next 10, 20 years. If, yeah. If we can yeah. get value out of it, it's, it's very important. And now operators. You know, I, other states, you pretty mill have to, but you know, Texas, you don't. So Oklahoma, the same. So a lot yeah. of times we don't even know how much is coming out yeah. or going places. Let's make some discoveries. Let's go through the presentation and okay. uh, yeah. So let's go to the third slide, which. Um, so when we started this, there were the three issues. Uh, there were wells that that essentially had these high total dissolved solids. And when I say high, I'm talking 150 uh, parts per million to up to 300 parts per million. Very high. You know, when a normal one should be, you know, around 50,000 uh, 50, parts per million. Okay. So, you know, very high stuff. And then we had wells that produced an excessive amount of water. Um, you know, a normal A well should be maybe three or four um, uh, water oil ratio. And, you know, we're talking about 10, 15, 20. So very large. And then the high H2S in these wells, right. which is interesting because the H2S wasn't in the oil. It was only in the gas. Right on. Okay. So that's like a fractionate thing. Yes. And then, so, you know, my whole uh, process in doing the study was, you know, what might be the cause or causes? Um, were there certain areas that were more prone to these issues? And then which horizons uh, had the issues or not? And then, you know, how do we mitigate it? Yep. So that was, that was the whole process of this. And then these are the, the, the actual findings. As I mentioned before, the upper A and the Wolf Camp C have very characteristic waters. And they're recognizable both in the TDS and the stiff diagrams. Um, the Wolf Camp A you know, if you cross the lineament, you're going to have high TDS and H2S. I mean, you're just going to have to live with it. In this area, that's not true across the whole basin, but in this area it is. 
And then in the B and C wells, west of what we call the, the deep-seated yucca fault, if it was west of that, you're going to have issues. If it's east of it, you didn't have issues. Um, there were possibly a couple exceptions on the east side, and I think that could be contributed to two different factors. One, either the uh, carbonate interval, which actually sets up much of the division between the A uh, type wells and the B and C type wells, there's this carbonate in the lower part of the A. Uh, if that, in some areas, there's not much carbonate there, so you don't have a good seal there. Mm -hmm. Or in the case where people put these very, very large fracks on the, on the very upper part of the B, I think you're fracking all the way through. So those are kind of the exceptions. So that's really the findings. Interesting. Okay. We'll see a map of that deep seated yucca fault because I'm getting a visual yeah. that you have you have shallow liniment. The liniments are above you in like the salts and anhydrites or the liniments are the, the liniments you see very distinctive at the uh, interface between the salts and the Delaware section. Ah. So in the Lamar what, what shows up in the Lamar limestone, you can see these lineaments. Wow. That's There's the Achoan. Many times a, a grobin. The Achoan Guadalupean boundary. Absolutely. And then the deep seated so, fault is definitely like base. When you say deep seated, it's disrupting basement to. Yeah. And it rarely goes much uh, more than the pen section, maybe into yeah. the very wow. lowest, most. Wolf, uh, yeah, because yeah, those those deep seated faults are just moving laterally at that point, right? This is awesome. Okay, so this is the area. It's kind of the central part of of uh, Reeves County there in the Delaware Basin. Um, it's about eight hundred and seventy five square miles. This area is south of the Grisham Fault. Yeah. I did have a probably another 75 samples north of the Grisham Fault. But once you go north of the Grisham Fault, things change. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't quite as obvious. Definitely had the lineaments and definitely had issues. But there didn't seem to be as many characteristics that just stood out. And I didn't, since we didn't have acreage up there, I didn't spend uh, a lot of time looking at that. Characteristics so, in the in the brine data is what you're referring to? In the brine data, okay. correct. Okay, cool. Yes. Interesting. Thank you. So, you know, like I said, I had uh, I ended up with this particular study, about 185 wells. And of those wells, there was 538 samples. So is the 185 wells just kind of distributed evenly? Or, or where are you mostly at in your data set here? Because there's a lot more it, than It's 100. scattered throughout the area. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, uh, in, and you know, many of the operators that I got data from asked me not to show their locations. Sure. So I respect that and, and don't show that, but it's in that area. And this is our type log. So the first track is gamma ray on the left, and then uh, in the second track, a PE. Potential energy, or what is that again? 
the PE photoelectric, uh, uh, what is it, photoelectric, you know, done on the uh, density neutron. It's, uh, it's like a lithology it, log. It, yeah, the lithology log. It's great. It separates out, like, the, you know, at five, you're definitely in limestones. At about uh, 2.5, you're shale. So it, it's a real good lithologic tool. Not to put you on the spot. But I'm just curious, how does it actually, like, what is the number five representing? Is that some value? Like, what's the? It's a value. It's a photoelectric value. You don't have to ask a petrophysicist. Okay. We'll get, uh, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll reach out to the contacts. I, I can just them. say that number five uh, is, is limestone. Cool. And then uh, resistivity. And I just showed the deep. Um, and then lithology and then oil in place. So it's a real basic log suite. But here's that, that carbonate up. that carbonate you were talking about between the A and yeah. B, huh? It shows up really well. It carries across our area. I think it's, it, you know, we even noticed it in the different pressure regimes. The A, it has a, it, it's overpressured, but it's not as overpressured as the B. Mm. And so, you know, just from a pressure standpoint, these reservoirs are segregated, but the waters also tell you that too. And then in this particular case, you know, the, the, each one of them, I have an upper and lower. Most of the time, the upper is a clastic interval and the lower is carbonate. Once you get into the B, there are so many different uh, debris flows. It's not as consistent where, you know, the C has a much more consistent um, um, limestone interval. So you're saying you see a lot more laminations yeah. in the core of B? Uh, I'm not going to say laminations. You, uh, As you go across the area, you're going to have large debris flows come in. So it could be all carbonate or you know less carbonate. In this particular well yeah. that I happen to take, there's a lot less carbonate. Okay, I was but, thinking, you know, go go, go you know, a uh, half a section over, and that can be all carbonate. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the so, yeah the B the B goes in and out, but yeah, like you were saying, that C that lower C specifically, that's like the horizon that you can yeah. spot in so seismic. If you've looked at so, any line in the Permian, it's like oh, that's that's, correct. that's bottom of C. Now, I, I this is our nomenclature. There are some people that break this up differently. I do know some people. Their my C ends up being their lower B, mm -hmm. but you know everybody has a different way. A is pretty much the same, and the, the third bone spring is pretty much the same. Yeah. But once you get below the B, people have a different way of doing. But this is this is my type lock. This is what we carried across. Yep. Now we had production in the third bone spring, but I didn't only I only had a couple wells that I had water samples, so that wasn't statistically. Uh, usable. However, I will say that those samples look just like the upper A. Ah, that's interesting. But 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 we add horizontals in the, in the third bone, the upper A, the lower A, the upper B, the lower B, and the upper C. Tried them all, and all of them individually, we had wells that were economic in any one of those. And the, diff the big difference here as we go into the, the brine study or the so, water study, yeah. Yeah. So basically, an upper A characteristically has TDS between 55,000 and 75,000 
milligrams per liter and the chlorine and the sodium range from 800 to 1100 milliequivalents per liter. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. So, and then where the wolf can't see are fresher, if you'll notice that, they're fresher. They're between 35 and 45,000 milligrams per liter. And their sodium chlorides is somewhere between 55 and 70, uh, 775 milliequivalents per liter. Cool. So very diagnostic. Um, we can skip over this. You know, I talk about ideal data set and, and that's not important, but the reason I showed this, you can't read this, <laughs> this <laughs> uh, spreadsheet, but it amounts to, you know, when you get a lot of data, you can put it in a spreadsheet and very easily manipulate it. What, what I wanted to get across was when you, when you get this data from a service company, you normally get a well name, you don't get API, you get a well name, uh, you get when they uh, collected the sample, sample date, and then you will get the rest of this is data I put in. So I always put in an API that I know the well is the well that they do because I find that a lot of field people, you know, they only go by well name, not API, and they get them well names out in the field are sometimes very similar and they get them mixed right. up. The BK1 water or the BK, yeah. Yeah. With water chemistry, I pointed out to them, you've taken, you have the wrong name on this. Once I learned the field, I could tell you whether that water chemistry was from that well or not. Science, baby. So, yeah, it is. Um, all these and, wells, and so, I, I noticed all these wells have been completed by at least 2017. Most of the samples have a 2018, 2020 date. So, I mean, that, so you have an idea of, of when it started, like kind of like where it is in its life of production in the it's, curve. It's real important. Yeah. You point out something very important, Troy. I always put the completion date. Uh, you, when you get the, and the reason I do that, that gives me a quick idea from the sample date, from the completion date, whether I am still in flowback or that I've produced long enough that that sample is, should be diagnostic of the formation. And, so and just, and for like the listeners, what in your mind would be that period of time when you're like, well, okay, in, flowback in our particular area, I felt at six months, I was wow. pretty safe. Okay. Now that's not true everywhere and with every operator, but that's, that's been a, that was a real characteristic thing. The other thing I put in here is, is uh, where that uh, sample was so uh, sourced from. Yeah. Did it come from the tanks? Did it come from the flow line? Wellhead. From the separator wellhead. The closer you can get it to the wellhead, the better sample you have. Nice. And if, if it's taken from the tanks, you may not be able to use that sample. That's brilliant. So you yeah. do have to have all that information in there. Um, the other things that I add is the formation, you know, uh, and that's not a formation you get from IHS. That's a formation you actually know it's from. Yeah. <laughs> it's not reported to regulatory. Or it's not from the, you know, what the, another company gives you. Mm-hmm. So 
those are all really important. Then, you know, in my case, I added lineament and, and different things like that. Well, you know, every study might be different, but those are things I add. What about course, east or west of the Yucca Fault? Do you have that column on here? I don't. Um, that was a later thing, but I, I didn't really need that. Well, it would have been nice in the in the in the, to have that, but I don't have it on there. No. Okay. And then the cations and anions. The other thing that you have to know when you get these samples, did the lab give it to you in ppm mm. or milligrams per liter? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now they're mm -hmm. not much yeah. different, but they are different, especially oh, yeah. when you're yeah. doing analysis. Yeah, you still need to standardize that data. Big time. Yeah. And I found out that uh, unless you go to the actual lab tech that do them, most of the people don't know. <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I believe. And I they don't that. put it on their. They don't put it on any of their reports. Right. Which oh, is, that's crazy to me. Uh, yeah. Well, anyway. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> but it, it's it is kind of an assumption that the reader just kind of knows how to figure that out. But you, it's you got to deconvolve that. And be very, well, very for, specific. For many things that the field people use, and, and the field people use these, you know, reports to to take care of uh, water issues. Uh, some of that's not important to them. Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, they, they use it as they get it. And and uh, then, you know, I use these and then I just simply calculate equivalents, And I'll show you mm -hmm. that in another thing. Okay. So hey. once I have these standardized, it goes really quick. But you yeah. do have to understand your data like anything. Right. Yeah. You yeah, got to make sure you QA, QC it before you do any yeah. kind of interpretation. So, it's, you know, I start with what the service companies give me, understand it, and then add this other data. And then I can then I can use it uh, from different companies. It's safe to say at this point, you are um, like a human supercomputer in this situation. <laughs> you you understand the variables and the the flexibility of them all and you're looking at all the data cut in different ways my question with that being said is did you go into collecting this data specifically knowing you were going to try to map this all through stiff diagrams and the development of 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 how that's compartmentalizing things or did you just go out and try to collect you know just a kind of a standard good data set and then start like applying it with certain things like stiff or other other techniques. No, I knew I was going to use the stiff diagram because I've been using it for 30 years for different projects. Cool. Dr. Bob um, Trenum teaches us the stiff diagram in UTV. Oh yeah. I'll have you know. Oh right. yeah. It's a basic tool. Not many geologists know it, but it's a very basic tool that can help you. So, you know, the methodology is simple. You know, if you get into a spreadsheet, you can quickly kind of look at some issues. Um, you know, like all data, it doesn't matter whether it's water data, geology data, you know, there's some data you can use and some data you can't. So by going through and just highlighting things, um, like was it early time data? If it was early time data, like you can see there three months after, after completion, I really couldn't use that data in most cases. Yeah. Um, you, can, you can see that one, uh, as it turned out, it was from the pit. There's only 4,000 TDS. <laughs> <laughs> Color-coded as strange anomaly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, you get these other ones way down here that, you know, in the 200,000. Yeah. So, you know, um, 
And then, you know, I did highlight some cations and anions that just seemed out of whack. And, uh, you know, when I had multiple, if I was very fortunate and, and the farther along in the study I got, I did get multiple samples from a well, then you have to decide which sample do you use. Um, what I tried to do is number one, make sure that sample is, is out, you know, after flow back. And then if I had multiple samples, try to look at the first sample that is relatively same with the other samples. Yeah, so that's kind of my process. Yeah, some type of consistency. Mm -hmm. Because I actually did get some samples that had, you know, 100,000 swings. Well, usually there was either a problem that wasn't the right well that they sampled, or they sampled it from, you know, the tanks or somewhere, right. you know. So you do have to look at your data, what you're using. That's about all I need to say about this slide. Okay. Data set on this uh, spreadsheet that you would use. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. He just explained that. Well, he explained his selection criteria, but I want to see what the actual example on that table is. That we're going to use like yeah. later? Oh, yeah. yeah. He'll okay, I'll right show there. you that here in just a second. Yeah. But it's essentially four cations and four anions that you yeah. use. And you, you change them into milliequivalent. Now, all this water chemistry really comes from our friends in the hydrology field for fresh mm -hmm. waters, but you can use them for salt waters too. And there's different ways, different diagrams you can use. I happen to choose the stiff diagram because it's quick and easy for me. Yeah. But there, the, I, and I just showed these other ones just so people know that there's other ones out there. And in fact, uh, you know, Jensen's approach was a little different than mine, not using the stiff diagram. Ah, that's cool. What, which one did he use? The Piper? Um, he kind of used a modified shoulder diagram. Okay. You know, and, and then he did some uh, whis uh, whisper diagrams and that. Mm -hmm. So uh, he was just trying to show it a little different with a lot more. Uh, he even used more. Uh, cations and anions than I did. Okay. And uh, and I had him try some things because I wanted to see was I uh, approaching it from the most simplistic way of doing things. I always like to keep that kiss method. You know, keep it simple, stupid. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sure. Okay. So because anyway, let's do this. So th Sorry to interrupt, but let's do this. We have 30 minutes until the, the hard okay. stop for Skips, and we can obviously keep the conversation going uh, if Skips needs to jump. Uh, but what do you guys think? Just kind of go into some stiff diagrams and kind of how you evaluate that and in hopes that we're kind of... Let's kinda... just do a couple of those. Okay. Yeah, we don't, yeah, we don't have to get to it. Uh, we can skip this. And th this is the basic data where you go from parts per million to milliequivalents and then you go to uh, your mill equivalence, which is a mole getting into, you know, a conversion. Mm -hmm. And that's what's used in the, in the stiff plot. So once you get it into mill equivalence, you can put it in the, just in an Excel file, which is very simple. You don't need anything fancy. 
with an Excel file, you can do all this. Yep. And then when it plots now there are it... programs. Yeah. And and so this this just puts it all uh, you know in and these different patterns based on the patterns you can tell what is is going on with the waters in a well. Cool. So that's so pretty cool. That's so the basis. Relative to one of a one is the milli equivalent, right? That's the one number. So you have a date. Right. You have a date. Well, in this particular case, yeah. You know, okay. I, it, uh, I didn't have any data for the uh, CO three. They just didn't uh, uh, it, in anything. So I just put it down at one, just to keep it simple. Interesting. Is that why we have a V shape in all the in most of the the, uh, the data you show? Is is that because you assumed one for the? No, most of the time it's almost no. I mean zero, but yeah, in my case, that's what it is. Look, it, you know, I, I did have some iron, so it changed it from one oh, a little I bit. See. But for the most part, yeah. it's a very 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 small amount. It's an so interesting that's visual. Why it is almost one. And so yeah. the, every visual that we're about to see is is built the same way. You have sodium and chlorine at the top. Exactly. Okay. Well, he has yeah. the anions on the right and the yeah. cations on the left. Yeah, but and, and cations on the left from from highest to lowest in in general. Right, right. He's and but but the ultimate data units are the same. Yeah. All the data, yes. They've all been converted to this, and then you have calcium and bicarbonate, yeah, nice. magnesium, sulfate, iron, and CO three. Right. He's just yeah. And, and as it turns out, like I said, the sodium, the chlorine, the sulfate and the um, bicarbonate are the most important. So if we just took the A wells and I had 118 of them and plotted them all out here, they had a very characteristic look. But uh, the ones that had uh, high chlorine or sulfate plotted out way above a thousand. That's why I have those marks at a thousand up here on the, on the top part where the sodium and chlorine are. Okay. So that is a thousand milli equivalents. Look at the ones that are out there at two and 3000. Mm -hmm. All those wells are wells that were liniment affected. Wow. The other part to them, was that they had this high sulfate and a low car, uh, bicarbonate. So they had this kink in that style. Instead of the right. carbonate being, being higher, it's lower. So that's the distinction of all the ones that had a liniment. If you go to the right, and I had to pick out, you know, try to find wells that weren't affected by a liniment, that were in flow back and didn't have any parent wells. And out of all the data, I only found four wells wow. that I knew positively weren't affected by something. And they had these characteristics. So they were, they were less than a thousand for the most part. And they, they had a higher bicarbonate than the sulfate. Cool. So the, yeah, those so, are your type wells. Okay. Those are my type wells. Nice. 
So once I had that, then I can say that's my characteristic for A. Yep. And then, you know, the same with the lower ones, you know, so, uh, you know, I went through the same process. And for the most part, when I was able to boil it down, I had a few wells that were characteristic of it. So the upper part is showing all the wells and then the lower wells that are, you know, characteristic of it. Mm -hmm. So for the most part, the lower A had very distinctive uh, similar to this upper. Okay. And then we, I skip over the B right away and go to the C because the B happens to have characteristics of both A and C. But the C had these distinctive, again, uh, I had 31 wells. And then when it goes down to this, this is plotting, you know, a whole bunch of the wells up on top. And you get the scatter. What you see is a scatter. So if you back off with only those wells that I know uh, don't aren't early time wells or don't have a problem with them, you get a very distinct type water. And as it turns out, look where the thousand is. All those points are less than a thousand mm -hmm. in the sodium and chlorine. So they're fresher than what we saw with the upper. And that's where I got this TDS between 35 and 45 milligrams. That's what they turned out to be. And that the mm -hmm. sodium chloride was between 550 and 750. So those are, the, those are my two types. And then I looked at the B upper and the B lower. And the B upper happened to have uh, you know, some wells that looked like the upper A, there was only a few, there was only three upper and three lower that actually, you know, would plot out like a, like an A well out of all of those, wow. where I had a whole bunch of the next slide is the lower B. And, you know, I had a whole bunch of those wells that looked like the C. Wow. And if you look at the type log, you can say, oh, yeah, I understand that. Because the B is, the lower B is right on top of the C. There is no seal in there. That's all one compartment. Seal being the carbonate? The carbonate up there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in some cases where you probably had more carbonate in the lower B, that upper B ends up being more characteristic of the upper A. Uh -huh. But in most cases, ah. okay. So, so you know, once you start looking at this, you can go, oh, yeah, I can understand that. But that's why the B is kind of this transitional. It's more like the C in most cases. But mm -hmm. there could be a few cases where the B might be a little bit like the A. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, that's very interesting. Inferring and you know applying that to some ideas of what's changing in the geology over this area, you know why carbonates are building up there, why they are not, uh, and then at the end of the day, obviously, you know what were the characteristics in all this that seem to be associated with the better wells versus like the worst wells. Well, I couldn't tell you better wells or worse wells, but I can tell you wells that had issues with water. Okay. Okay, so those are operational issues. And operational issues cost you. Mm -hmm. 
Well, does A versus B get into water cuts? Uh, to a degree, you, you know, in general, the B and the C have higher water cuts than A. Okay. And they're fresh. That's a generality. Generality. That's a generality. They, they definitely have fresher waters, but in, uh, unless you have connected with uh, one of these lineaments. Now, let's go further on because this just kind of points out the water story. This is the lineament story. So all these lineaments uh, are 70 West, yeah. North 70 West. Yeah. These lineaments. Now, now, as you get north of the Grisham Fault and, and a little bit further west here, these lineaments actually turn almost east to west. Wow. And as you get south of here, they turn more southern. But mm -hmm. look at how regularly these lineaments are. They're yep. very, very regular. You, they're, these are typical Laramide type features. When you say laramide type yeah. features, you're saying that that the systematic spacing between liniments and the direction that they're in seems to be associated with the subducting plate. Yeah, the characteristics of the uh, uh, of the tectonics in the Rocky Mountains, this extensional characteristic, you see this across the Rocky Mountains in many areas. These very distinctive. Uh, regular uh, fractures or faults. And this is something similar that you see uh, in the Rockies. That's why we don't see this over in the Midland Basin, or we don't see this up on the Central Basin platform. Is that right? You know, the effects, uh, the effects of the Laramide don't go through the whole Permian Basin. I, well, you you do also see them in the Midland Basin. I've I've uh, on my thesis itself, there were lineaments in this exact orientation that went all the way through the survey. And, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, and it, and it was interesting because the correlations that you were seeing, uh, I was seeing as well tying into production, but I wasn't looking at the water chemistry at all. I was just looking at the uh, yeah, just like their APIs and like the like the decline curves over time. That's uh, interesting. Uh, yeah. The only places I've heard of these are over in Culberson, Reeves, and a little bit of Pecos. So that's mm -hmm. interesting that there are other places. Mm -hmm. I, I guess I shouldn't, that shouldn't be a surprise because, you know, that Laramide event Huge. somewhat affected the whole Permian. It just hadn't oh, been yeah. obvious. Whole Western United States. But anyway, yeah, uh, what this gets down to is I was just trying to show in a very simplistic way where I did have known lineaments. Where mm -hmm. they crossed, they had these big high TDSs. That's what the purpose of this particular presentation is. Uh, okay, okay, so awesome. on the map, the the red dots are Wolf Camp A these intercepts. Are, these are all wells that had Wolf Camp A, and as you can see, it, the great majority of them cross lineaments. Yeah, and you have a water sample from all of those holes. I don't have them of all these, just the ones on the map, but. You know, I've just shown a, 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 the ones that that are are real obvious to okay, see. Okay, so those you know, high, some of the, the blue numbers are the high TDSs, right? Right, right. Uh, you know, I have a whole bunch more that might not be quite as high. So, you know, there are some that are only at the 150. These are the real obvious ones. But but I can tell you, probably 90 percent or more. If, if you cross one of these lineaments for the most, you know, 
there's probably greater than 90% chance you are going to have an issue. Wow. That's so awesome. This is, this is, oh, go on. I'm sorry, but for your structure mind, Skippo, and for Stan, to have these liniments in this direction at the Ochoan, Guadalupe, and Boundary, what does that suggest the convergent vector to be? Perpendicular? Yeah, it's flat subduction. And it's going this way. Yeah, that's that. That's the um, shortening axis that you just drew. Shortening axis, right? Wow. And and though it's interesting, those directional. I, I assume all those long lines there are the directional drilling. Right, those are the well. That's moves. correct. Yeah, it's interesting that a lot of them are right along that that shortening axis. Well, they're that way because because yeah. the the maximum stress. It's perpendicular to those. Mm -hmm. Correct. So, so those are Riedel tensile directions. Mm -hmm. And being perpendicular to that is your maximum horizontal stress, meaning you're going to be able to get your fracks propagating in the direction away from the wellbore the best is the idea on the engineering side, right? Yes, theoretically. So they're going to, it's almost like they're connect, those fracks are going to be connecting to those liniments, right? They're going with That's them. That's correct. Wow. Yeah. That's correct. And in fact, that's an issue when you have wells so close together, you may have only touched the, let's say a liniment in one well, but the, the way you frack them, you can end up connecting all your wells to one of those liniments. Yeah, they yeah. turned around. And I, okay. and I have an example. I don't show it here, but we have an example where that happened. So this is what we call the Yucca Fault. It's a very diagnostic on a, on a 3D. It uh, essentially goes, you know, up, like I said, through the lower pen and stops. It doesn't, you don't see it up uh, into the wool camp. But, yeah. Oh, sorry. My, my structure brain is, is working again. It looks like this is probably... Uh, right lateral shear based on the upside and the downside? We don't see any wrenching on this fault. It's mostly uh, a normal fault. Okay. High uh, angle? That's not to say, yeah, it's fairly, it's very high angle. Um, this side's you know, dropping, this side's going up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, I haven't done much study on the fault because it. we thought it was going to affect us, but it really never affected our wells mm -hmm. that we know of too much. It, um, As it turned out, it's these liniments that affected. But what was key about this, it just turned out to be that the wells west of that all were affected. It didn't matter whether you're A, B, or C, or whatever where yeah. when you came to the east, only the A wells were affected. The B and C wells weren't. Affected but, by high TDS or what, what kind right. of, what, what do you mean well, by that? The high TDS or, or H2S problems once they Correct. cross the linear. They're all over there. Okay. okay. Down and their own side. Again, yeah. operators were stopped, you know, were, were in the B and C, not always going, uh, you know, drilling across these, you know, they were trying to find ways to avoid having to deal with H2S or high water. So they would, they would try to drill between these or they would try to drill 
partial wells, etc. And you know, I'd have to strip this away to show you some of those. Um, once we once we started seeing this was a, an issue, mm-hmm. but but what I wanted to get at is is if you were east of this, if you're drilling a B and C well, you really had no worry about it. Just go ahead and drill your well. Interesting. Wow. So on that downthrown side of the fault, you're not having right. any any problems in the B and C. Not that I've seen. That's okay. awesome. Okay. Now, there may be some exceptions out there, uh, just that of what we had and mm-hmm. of the operators that I was able to discuss this with. Okay. And like any good geologist, would you continue a dotted or dashed line going that way at the end of this, or does it actually <laughs> truncate like that? Uh, I, I don't know, because I don't have a 3D any further than that. Okay. How far down can you see this in the 3D? Does it go to the basement? Uh, at least to the Ellenberger. I'm okay. guessing it goes to the basement. I, I don't know the answer, though. Okay. Another thousand, couple thousand feet in the basement there. Well, and you're out of your cube. You're out of your seismic at that point. So, yeah. Anyway, that, and, and so these conclusions are all what I've showed right up in front. Essentially, the A and C are very diagnostic. Uh, a wells are going to have problems where the essentially the B and C, depending on where you're at, that makes a difference. But also, the, I, I put this footnote here, is that many petrophysicists were using the same RW throughout this whole interval. Whoa. Ooh. Okay. Uh, but, you know, if you had the data and really never looked at the data the way I did, that's probably what you do. Mm-hmm. Sure. But, but now that you, you, you understand that there are some differences and that you should be using a fresher RW once you get into the B and C. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I would <laughs> And, and it took me a lot of convincing of some petrophysicists to, to do that. But, uh, you know, that was only because of the data that they had. And, and, it, and it does not necessarily apply through the whole Delaware Basin. But in this part of Reeves County, it does. Yeah, big time. Yeah, I, I was going to say, yeah, that's huge, right? And like you said, when you're in an exploration stage, right? You can probably get away with using that same RW, but you know, when you're at this point of like, Hey, this is our acreage. we got to, you know, we got to optimize it. Yeah. Let's, let's like, you know, hone in these models a little bit better. Right. Especially, you know, what, uh, you know, we, most people have gone to these very extensive reservoir models so that they can predict, you know, their production Mm -hmm. and completion, excuse me, everything. On either side of that fault, if you, do you have data in the oils that, you know, like gravity data or oil chemistry data, alkane to aromatic ratios or anything? that? Yes. And, and I will tell you on the west side, the, the, there is a, there's also a difference in that you have a higher heat flow. So your GOR continues to increase substantially going from east to west and i'm talking about east of that you're talking about 
of GORs probably in the two to 4,000 range. As you go west of that, you start approaching GORs up into the 10 or 15,000 range. Wow. Yeah. So it gets really gassy. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. super high pressure on that side. That's not so right. It does definitely change. Do you see gravity differences in the oils? Uh, yeah, we even see gravity differences, you know, in a, in a, from let's say 45 to 55, even Whoa. within sections. East of the, oh. of that structure or West? Oh, well, now, um, east of the structure. When you get West of the structure, it definitely gets up in that 55 to 65. 60. So they're but, lighter on the West side, right? The yes, they're, they're definitely, definitely higher GOR or definitely higher gravities on the west side. Interesting. Uh, part of the part of the issue is you have in situ oils and you also have some migrated oils, I believe. Is there a um, difference between Wolf Camp A and the C, B and C in terms of oil gravity? Um, not real obvious. But they're, you know, every well was a little different. Again, they range from 40s to the 50s. We did, I didn't have enough data and I didn't spend enough time in the oils to really get into that. I think there's a whole nother opportunity there yeah. to, to look at that. Okay. Because, but I think it's complicated because I think you have both in-situ oils and you have migrated oils. You know, another group that if you haven't had on is the, uh, the uh, Premier Group. Yeah. And in particular, their consortium by Baloo. By Baloo. I haven't, I haven't heard that. Baloo. Uh, I can't think of his last name. But he runs the Permian Consortium. And it is a collaborative company consortium, um, a little bit like what the BEG does, you know, like in their, uh, but, you know, on the private side. And their collaborative stuff is what they've done with their, the models of the Permian is phenomenal. Mm. And I think you would find their geomechanical and their reservoir models fascinating. Mm, cool. And I'll send you his his contact. I think he would be a good guy to talk to and have yeah. on a podcast. Yeah, please do pass that along, and we're going to keep doing our part, which is just talk to uh, the amazing people of the Permian, the folks with the experience of the Permian, and uh, and yeah, hit it with new ideas, new data, new talk, new topics, and uh, and keep this going. So thank you again for your time. I really well, appreciate it. I appreciate it. Yeah. And if you'd like to talk more sometime, Stan, uh, yeah, I would. Or, and you, Troy, you know, let me know. I'd okay. Be, I'd be happy. When it comes to geochemistry and the oils and all that, uh, I get fascinated. I, I know just enough to be dangerous, but not enough to be an expert. Same here. Two dangerous guys can be <laughs> dangerous squared. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mr. Ensminger. Right. David, thank you. Yes, thank you.